0: Lord, I just want to thank you that as a shepherd, you are absolutely amazing. The way you nurture, protect, guide, provide. Lord, all the gracious things you do for us. And I pray today as we hear these words, Lord, the fears, the doubts, the anxiety, the frustrations, the distractions will dissipate. And Lord, we will be renewed and restored in our soul. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Some of you may be acquainted with the name Catherine Marshall. She was married to a very famous minister of the gospel who later became not only a pastor, but he became the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. And Eons ago, they made a movie about him. Some of you might know who Peter Marshall is, and it was a movie called A Man Called Peter. I think it was a black and white. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> but the reason I say that is because Catherine Marshall became a very noted author, and she shares a story and a very critical point in her life. And I bring you back to an older time, that actually economically was more difficult than the moment we're currently in. During the Great Depression in the 1930s, there was a lot of challenges. And this is what she said, by the time I graduated from high school, the Great Depression, the Depression was daily dealing our town, devastating blows. Businesses were failing, banks were closing, bankruptcies, suicides occurring with greater frequencies, Almost everyone living on credit. What a challenging moment. She says, with our family's hand-to-mouth existence, how could there possibly be money for me to go to college? I'd already been accepted at Angus Scott, and even though I had saved money from debating prizes and had the promise of a work scholarship, we were still hundreds of dollars short of what I needed. Now, in today's terms, that's thousands of dollars. So she was a long ways from her goal. One evening, my mother found me lying across my bed, face down, sobbing, and sat down beside me, and she said, we're going to have to deal with this. At this point, my mother took me into the guest room, and together we knelt down beside an old-fashioned oak bed. Catherine, I know it's right for you to go to school. Every problem has a solution. You got to write that down. Every problem has a solution. Let's ask God to tell us how to bring this dream to a reality. As we knelt there, instinctively, I knew this was a very important moment. We were about to meet God in a more intimate way than during our bedtime prayers or grace at mealtimes or even in our family prayers in my dad's study. How many know that there are moments? I mean, there's the general praying, the day-to-day, but then there are those moments when you know you've got to touch the heart of God. And now she said, my mother, who was definitely a prayer warrior, was now admitting me into this place where she had this relationship with God. In silence, I quickly reviewed my relationship with God, with whom, at this moment, we were seeking an audience. At the age of nine, I had given my life to him. Attendance at Sunday school and church had been regular ever since. Little enough, though, as I was the daughter of a preacher. How many now? She didn't have a choice, right? She she thought about it kind of uneasily. In other words, it wasn't a great sacrifice. This is what her family did. She said, I had prayed many times since that encounter with him years before, but how real had my prayers really been? The truth then struck me. Most of them had been for selfish purposes. I had given so little of myself to Him. In other words, all of my prayers were about me and my needs. I stole a look at my mother. She was praying intensely, but soundlessly, but her lips were moving. And then, closing my eyes silently, I prayed the most honest prayer of my life to that point Lord, I've been selfish. Wow, isn't that a powerful prayer? Lord, this is where I'm really at. This is, I recognize something about myself. I've taken everything from you, from your church, from my parents, and I have given very little in return. Forgive me for this Lord. Perhaps I don't deserve to go to a college like Angus Scott. A deep sob within my throat made me pause. Pause. I knew now what I needed to do. And Lord, I turn this dream over to you. I give it up. You know, think about Jesus teaching us how to pray. You know, he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Every day when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, think about it. The prayer goes something like this. You know, thy will be done thy kingdom come. In other words, what she was saying was, Lord, whatever you want for my life is okay for me. I surrender my dream to you. Boy, you know, think about how powerful that is. How many times we have an agenda. We really want God to do our thing, but God has a plan and purpose for each one of our lives. And I believe that we need to learn how to lay everything down. Our families, our job, our future, our fears, our marriages, our hopes, our dreams. We just lay them at his feet like she was doing. And then it says, my honesty brought me relief. It washed away the guilt. It strengthened my faith. Several days later, my mom and dad decided by faith that I should go ahead and go to college. They felt very strongly about this, and we kept praying. God had convicted me of my selfishness. Perhaps he wanted me to give up this dream and serve him in some other way. Days passed, weeks passed, and then one day my mother opened a letter and she gave a whoop of joy. Here it is, here's God's answer to our prayers. The letter contained an offer from a special project of the federal government for my mother to write the history of the county in which we lived. And with what I had already had, this salary now would be more than enough for the rest of my college. Once again, God had heard my cry, the cry of my family. You know, God is a God who can supply our needs. Isn't that amazing? Not only is this a wonderful truth, but in time of need, it's a source of hope. And we need to have our eyes fixed on God. You know, sometimes we lose a source of hope, right? We, 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 we end up, our hope is dissipated. We think things will never change. There's, it seems so beyond what can be done. You know, we try to figure everything out in our minds. We're trying to solve our problems, but nothing comes our way. We cannot get it. Oh, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. And you know, often God answers in a way we at least anticipated or expected. That is an amazing reality. And so today as we turn to this well-known psalm, Psalm 23, we're going to discover the wonderful provisions that come from this amazingly unique relationship that we can have with God. I love this. It's so beautiful. You know, the first truth about God's provisions is simply that it's that it's really foundational upon relationship. Think about it. I know that God provides for every living creature. I know that it rains on the just and the unjust and the sun shines on the just and the unjust. I know God is taking care of every person on the planet. But there is a unique sense that God takes care of his own. That we are his children. Isn't it true that every once in a while a stranger can give us something we don't anticipate? That kind of blows us away. But usually that's very rare. Isn't that true? And generally the generosity and the favor that comes our way are from people we know. And then ultimately though if we're children we find that most of our provision comes from our own family. We don't think about it, but our parents are usually the great providers that God uses to help us in our lives. So it's, I think it's rare to receive from strangers. Listen to what this giving comes from. It comes out of relationship. I think the same is true in the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 1. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another translation says, I will have no lack. There's a sense that God is making, giving us an understanding of what happens when we're in this kind of relationship. Psalm 23 is actually a metaphor. It's actually a description of our relationship with God. And David, who probably wrote this psalm, grew up as a shepherd kid, right? He was a shepherd boy before he ever became the king. I'm sure he's probably writing now in adulthood, but he reflected back. Remember when David was about to fight Goliath, that amazing story, and he went to King Saul and he said, I can do this. Why can you do this, David? Because once, when I was a shepherd boy, a bear came and grabbed one of my sheep and I killed the bear. And another time when a lion came and grabbed a sheep, I killed the lion. And so David had this amazing understanding that as a shepherd, he would care for the sheep. And David knew that God was the great shepherd. He was the great leader. He was the one that we could depend on in our time of difficulty and danger, time of need in our lives. You know, we don't have the same sense in our society today, this imagery, because we don't live in predominantly an agrarian culture. We live in an industrial culture, right? Actually, I would say today we live in a technological culture. And so we lose some of the meaning of this imagery that we're seeing here. But think about it. For most of the history of mankind, shepherds were a normal act, uh, reality, and we see it throughout the Bible. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. We'll come back to that in a moment. But think about all of these amazing words of encouragement as people could look and see shepherds taking care of their sheep. And immediately this imagery came to mind. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the leaders of God's people were called shepherds because their responsibility was to care for the people. First of all, we see this concept expressed is is actually an expression of God's ownership. He is my shepherd. But if he's my shepherd, I must be his sheep. In the sense that then he's the one that kind of possesses me. He's, he's the owner of my life. And I think we f- sometimes fail to recognize or appreciate that we are highly dependent on Almighty God. We don't feel that way sometimes. You know, I was just thinking about this message and I was sharing... Before we had the first service, we meet for prayer, and I was sharing with the men that pray with me every Sunday. And I said, you know, for most of us, we're kind of like the young person who wants to live independently of their parents, and so they want to take a road trip across Canada, and they just say, give me the money, you know? And so we get the 1000 or $2,000 our parents give us, and then we're headed off on the great adventure, but you know what happens? We're on the adventure, we have car problems, And it eats up a lot of the shekels that we have in our hands. You know what I mean? And now we're starting to get a little anxious because we've only got to Medicine Hat. We're a long ways from crossing (laughs) Canada. And we're thinking about where we're going to spend the night and fuel and all the rest of it. And, you know, as we keep journeying along, you know all of a sudden our resources are dwindling and we're saying, you know, I'm not really enjoying this because I had plans in my mind to see this place and go to see that place and the resources are diminishing and I'm not enjoying my trip anymore. I feel like I'm living with a lot of anxiety. And there's a lot of people in this room and there's a lot of people in our city, a lot of people in our culture are living this kind of a life. But listen to what the scriptures teach us about relationship with God The Bible says, ask and you shall receive. Jesus then goes on to say this. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts for your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to you? You know, I used to always wonder about that statement. It seems like, why would I be asking for the Holy Spirit? But think about it. Who is the Holy Spirit but God himself? And so when we are in need, we're not just praying for the gifts, that we actually pray for the giver, that we actually say, I don't want just, you know, the $2,000 or $3,000 to go across Canada. Actually, Dad, I want to go with you. I want to go in your vehicle. I want you to drive, and I'm going to ride with you so that if there's a problem, you're there with me. And so all of a sudden now, we're on a whole different experience, and when a problem comes along, Dad handles it. And we're enjoying this trip together, and we're getting to know each other on this journey. How many would rather be living that kind of a life than the first kind of a life? You see the difference You see, God says, I will go with you. See, Moses was so smart, he said to God, God says, I'm gonna bring you into the promised land. I'm gonna send angels to go ahead of you into the promised land. Moses says, don't bother, I'm not going. If you don't show, I don't go. In other words, Moses wouldn't even be satisfied with an angel leading him into the promised land. He wanted God's presence. And folks, so many of us, we live a life of a lot less because we're satisfied with a lot less than that. We want to take on the pressures ourselves rather than learn to depend on God. Think about sheep for a minute. Number one, they're not bright. You know that? Sheep are not very bright creatures. Number two, you know they tend to get lost and they put themselves in great danger. And how many in this room could say, you know, as a sheep, I've done some stupid things in my life. I've made some bad decisions. I've put myself at risk at times. Oh, that I would have stayed by the good shepherd. I wouldn't have had these negative experiences, you see. But David brings it out. The Lord is my shepherd. This isn't the Lord is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a personal thing. There's a level of intimacy with the shepherd. I know the shepherd, and I am his sheep. He's going to take care of me. Paul brings out this idea how we belong to God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own you got to drill this in your mind. I belong, it says, we were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And I don't think he's just talking about our physical body. He's saying, honor God with all that is within you. You don't own yourself. The moment you give your life to Jesus, you have to say, I belong to him. I'm dependent on him, but that's not a bad trade-off because I get to ride with him. He gets to take care of me. Wow, this is so neat through this journey called life. That's great. As far as God's concerned, all people belong to him because he's their creator. But to us who have entered into this covenant relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we belong to him in a very special way. We have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin through his death, and we belong to him. We don't do our own thing we actually need to yield to him we're a special people with a special destiny secondly david describes the lord as being our shepherd as i already said sheep are very defenseless they're gentle generally speaking but they can butt heads and cause problems amongst themselves we never have that experience as human beings right They're absolutely dependent on the gracious care of the shepherd. David knew that the welfare of the sheep was dependent on who this shepherd is. Some shepherds of sheep are very poor. Others are great. Uh, You know, Philip Keller in his insightful book on the Psalms points out an experience he had as a shepherd. He was a shepherd. And so he saw his neighbor and he said, you know, that guy should have never been a shepherd because he always neglected his sheep. And what happened is these poor sheep were drinking from dirty mud puddles. They were picking up parasites and other various diseases. Their wool was shabby. And then he could see them on the other side of the field. You know, they had a fence. And they were eating over that brown grass. And his sheep were on the nice side and he led them to the green grass there near the gentle flowing brook. You know, this isn't just about physical sheep. This is about people. People. And a lot of people today, you know, that's how they live. They're, they're, they're at the end of themselves. You know, they, they quote this psalm, and the reality is they come to the end of this life. Psalm 23 is probably the most familiar psalm at a funeral, right? People are quoting this, and they don't even know the shepherd. What a sad thing it really is. They've never experienced this personal relationship with God. They've never had this amazing provision that's deliverance from all this anxiety that we have to live. It's so sad for me to think that there is someone here today may still be outside the total care of the good shepherd in this way or refuse to yield so that he can care for them in that way. I think there's people living lives of quiet desperation, spiritual destitution, people struggling with life. Many are struggling with the sense that nobody really seems to care. Isn't that true? You know, a lot of people, you talk to them. You know, we think that if we have our material needs met, we'll be happy. You know, Jim Carrey said, I wish some people, I, I read, Patty read this to me this week, You know, he said, to, he said, I wish everybody was as rich and famous as I am. And then they would know how empty this life really is. How sad is that? Do you think having all your material needs met is going to totally satisfy you? Or do we have other needs that are probably even more important? I think there are other needs. I think the need to really know that we are loved unconditionally. To be loved without strings attached. What a powerful thing that is. Or to have you know, some sort of a sense of significance and value in our world. Every one of us needs to feel like there's a purpose to our life. We're not just streaming through here with no sense of value, dignity, or even purpose. What a sad thing that is. But you know, only God can provide those kind of needs in our lives. What a joy it is to see people who have lived in spiritual ignorance and darkness come to the great shepherd. You know, a number of years ago, um, I went to visit this young middle-aged man. He was in prison. So they asked to see a pastor. I got a phone call. I went to see him. You know, I mean, how many have ever gone to prison to visit somebody? It's a very interesting experience. I've been there a number of times. So I'm, I'm visiting, and uh, so he tells me a story, and it's a story of destitution. It's just, it's just a sad story, and I hear a lot of sad stories. He has no hope. He's overwhelmed by a sense of failure. Um, you know, he, he, he just, he, he's, so, he's so broken And so I said, listen, have you ever heard the good news that Jesus came to bring, the good news called the gospel? And he goes, no, I have never heard that. I said, you want me to explain to you why God created you and what his purpose is for your life? Because I said, you haven't experienced it yet. He said, I'd love to hear that. So I began to share the good news about Jesus. And you know what happened? At the end of it, I said, would you like to receive Jesus as your lord and savior to begin to you know experience what god's intent is for your life rather than how you've lived you know in brokenness and he said absolutely and so we prayed and he gave his life to christ and i thought okay that's good you know i've i've done this with other people and in prison systems and you know sometimes it's just a pure con job you know i'm being honest so, I'm, I mean, I'm, I leave there and I go, boy, Lord, I sure hope this guy was sincere. I hope this is the real deal. I hope he really asked you in his life. I hope you really did a work of grace. And so, you know, later on, I get a phone call to come and visit him. And so I went back and I was visiting with him and I was kind of wondering in my mind, you know, if this, if this is just another con job, you know, like he wants to get out of prison. You know what I mean? Like good behavior, look what I'm trying to do and all the rest. And... And you have to understand that some people have lived with so much manipulation and self-deception in their lives. They're really good at deceiving other people. And I've been deceived by other people many times, you know, because you're trying to help people. That'll happen to you. And as I walked into the room, I noticed there was something different about him. There was I could see his countenance was different. Because, you know, you know, you've ever looked at people, you can kind of tell if they're sad and they're downcast and they're, you know, burdened. But he was he was like... I could see the brightness in his eyes. I could see there was, he was, there was a lightness about him. And so, you know, I, I was listening, and he, he, he started out saying that he was so thankful for being in jail. That was a good sign for me to hear that. That, that told me there's something going on inside of this guy. And, and, and so he began to be thankful. He recognized that God himself had reached down and stopped him from his present course of self-destruction. I thought, well, oh, this is good. He says, you know, it's interesting. You told me I needed to read the Bible. He says, I've got a lot of time to do that. I said, that's great. He said, I've been doing it. I've been reading the Bible. And you know, I've been here many times. He had been in jail many times. So he was, this wasn't his first time there. And he said, you know, I've tried to read this book because there's always people around. I mean, in jail, there's a lot of Bibles, usually. I've tried to read it, and I got nothing out of it. He said, you know what's interesting? I said, no, tell me what's interesting. I'm reading it, he said, and I'm beginning to understand it. It's actually making sense to me. I said, that's great. Now Now I'm saying to myself, okay, the Holy Spirit now is helping him understand what's going on. This is really good. I'm hearing all the right things. He doesn't know that, but he's telling me I'm actually a true child of God. Then he goes on and says this. He says, you know, in the past when i get thrown into this very jail, I would withdraw from people. I'd be grunting at the guards. I was filled with anger. And that's what the guards told me, too. He says something's going on with this guy. He's not the normal behavior. He was polite. He's appreciative. He's got a smile on his face. They don't know what to make of me. They're starting to think I'm crazy. You know, I'm going, okay, that's good. There's some change in his life happening. And then he said, I told them I've come out of darkness. And they don't understand, but now I do. It doesn't bother me. They make fun of me because I understand where they're at because I was there. But he said, It doesn't matter anymore. I am so happy. He just wanted to thank me for coming and bringing the good news to Jesus to him. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, isn't that encouraging, what Jesus can do and how he can change a person's life? It can change our whole emotional makeup. Let me move on here to the second thing. It's not just the relationship. Now that we're connected to, to our Lord like that, look what happens. The relationship that the, that the provisions now begin to flow, the riches that flow out of this relationship. Now, I think we gotta take a, a moment here to unpack some things, because we get a little confused. Here's how, you know, sometimes as Christians, we really want to sell the gospel to people. Excuse me, so we tell them. When you, get, when you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. I never tell people that, because that's not quite true. Though some of the problems that you have will go away. You know, the guilt, the shame, all of the brokenness, that kind of nonsense starts getting fixed. You get a whole different set of problems. Here's the different set. Now that you're a Christian... The devil, Satan, and his demonic forces who have never bugged you because you were dead in trespasses and sins, now all of a sudden you have a new adversary. So you have the spiritual you know, battle that starts happening in your life. And you know, before you could just you know, do those things and it wouldn't even bother you. Now you're doing some things and it's starting to bug you. It's called conviction. It's really getting to you. You just can't keep doing some of the things you were once doing. You're now a new person in Christ. The other thing that happens is, and people will say this, you know, wow, when you become a Christian, God will meet all of your needs. I said, yeah, that's true, but sometimes we lock into the material side of it. Can I just point out something? In the Old Testament, they did talk about, you know, things on a material level. What did God promise his covenant people? The land. He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. He told them if they would obey, he would bless them with material provisions. How many Christians today, that's what we latch on to because we want material provisions. But let me say something. That's only a small part of it and that's not the focal point of it. And there are moments sometimes we struggle with material provisions. You know what? The New Testament emphasizes something a little different. Let me just show it to you. Here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. By the way, where is the heavenly realms? Most of us think, well, that's in heaven, Pastor. No, 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 no. That's in the kingdom of God. We are, if you're a child of God, you are in a new kingdom. You are, you are in the heavenly realms right now. That's interesting, isn't it? He has blessed you in these heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he enumerates them. You're loved by God. You're in God's family. You know, you're adopted. You're adopted. That's the kind of blessing. So how many go, you know, I may not have a million dollars, but I don't need a million dollars because I'm riding in the Father's car. Remember, I'm going across the country. I'm taking this journey through life with God. Why do I need as much as other people need? I've got God. You've got to recalibrate your thinking a little bit. See, if you're on your own, I could appreciate you might need to have the lotto But if you've got God, you don't need the lotto. You've got God. God is better than the lotto. Because remember what Jim Carrey just told us. I wish you guys were all rich and famous. Then you'd find out that that's not what makes a person happy. See, there's other needs in our life that are far greater, and we don't always realize that. We don't really know the deepest needs of of our lives. And yet we see people pursuing all of these things what in order to satisfy their soul. And yet the remaining verses of the psalm reveal to us these amazing provisions to our well-being. And the first provision is found in verse 2. It says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now if you're a sheep, lying down speaks of rest. Lying down in green pastures speaks of provision for hunger, Right? And you know, Jesus says something very fascinating in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. He said, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsting, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. How many think that's a little bit of a dichotomy? The person who's hungering and thirsting is the person that's satisfied. But you've got to hunger and thirst after the right thing. Too many people in our culture are hungering and thirsting after the wrong thing, and that's why they can't be satisfied. But when you and I are hungering and thirsting after th- what's right, this relationship with God, then you and I will find real satisfaction in our souls. Wow. As a matter of fact, uh, Sometimes in his wisdom, Jesus has to make us lie down. How many have ever had that experience? You know, because we're always going. This is a frantic, anxious, producing culture. I watch people. They have their cell phones, and they're always hitting buttons. You know, there's games on. There's texting. There's all kinds of action. And they're, and they're just, you know, this this frantic energy that's going on all the time. And there's really no rest. We're just wired right up. And then Jesus does something in our lives and he takes a bunch of stuff out of our lives so we can stop and get off the merry-go-round. you know what I'm talking about? He'll make you stop, you know, and so that you and I can have the opportunity to refocus our lives on him and find true satisfaction. Because you know this other stuff is, it's like the false stuff. It satisfies for the moment, but then it just creates deeper hunger for more. And you know what? That's why we have to have extreme sports now. We're not we're not satisfied just with sports. It's got to be extreme sports. We've got to do everything to the extreme because you know what? We can't, we it's never enough. It's never enough in our lives. We're just not satisfied. And that's because we're pursuing the wrong stuff. That's why. You know, one of my trips to India, I was in Delhi. I think I've told the story a couple of times before, but for most of you, you probably haven't heard it. Some of you you forgot, so I'll tell it anyways. And we're driving through Delhi and I see this red light and, you know, I'm looking at it and there's an English word written in the middle of the red light. So really weird. I'm, just, I'm going, am I seeing this? And the word is relax. It doesn't say stop. It says relax. <laughs> you know? I don't know if God was trying to talk to me. So I'm looking at this red light and all of a sudden the car next to us just goes... Phew right on through the red light. So I say to some of my traveling buddies, I say, he's not relaxed. <laughs> and then the thought occurs to me. You know what? When we don't relax, what happens is, you know, which really means we don't, we're not really trusting God and resting in what God's gonna do. We're actually endangering ourselves and others. Isn't that true? I, I don't know about you. I get worked up once in a while. Some of you probably have, you know, some of you type B people, you're so laid back, we have to check to make sure you're still breathing. (laughs) You know, I sometimes envy your personality. I wish I had a little bit of that rub off on me. I'm type A, which means like, you know, phonetic, high energy, can't stop, you know, that's why I know about all this stuff. You know, I have to hear that thing that says relax, you know, it's, anybody else have a problem with Relaxing. Oh, we got a few honest people. Thank you. I just don't feel so alone now. But, you know, God's trying to speak to us today. He's saying, look, it's about trusting me. And, you know, it's not gonna always work out the way we think it ought to. Who cares if it doesn't work out the way I want it to? You know, I'm more concerned about is it working out the way God wants it to? And a lot of times when we're hung up and, you know, we're uptight about what's going on, sometimes what we're doing is alienating and affecting people, And Right? We can be hurting people. We, we're, we are endangering others and ourselves. The guy that went through the red light, he was a danger not only to himself but to all the people around. You know, he could have had a disaster. I've seen two people killed in India already so by traffic accidents. So I already know how crazy that driving is and I'm going, this is dangerous stuff. Pastures speak of a place where sheep are not only resting but they're being fed. Wow, their needs are being met. So God now utilizes His Word as our daily bread. That's what's going to nourish your soul is the Word of God. You know, God utilizes the challenges of life in such a way that He's forcing us to turn to the Word of God to sustain us through the challenge. You know, so if you're not in the Word of God, I'm going to tell you, you're at a huge disadvantage because you're trying to operate without God's great resource to help you through that challenge. Another way of saying that our soul is satisfied, he uses another analogy. The first is, you know, hunger, the pasture, the eating. But then he goes on to say he leads us beside the still or quiet waters, the idea of thirst. I I find it so fascinating, hunger and thirst. And then I think of that story of Jesus. He goes, you know, the Bible says it was the Spirit of God directed him. It was important that he go through Samaria And he did. Most Jews avoided it. He went there. He went to a little town called Sychar. And when he got there, it was noontime and it was very unusual. There was a person at the well. How many know in the heat of the day in the Middle East, you don't want to be sitting there at 12 noon collecting water. As a matter of fact, you know, I've noticed when I was in India, like a lot of the women would go early in the morning. They still do this. This It's amazing to me. They'd go get water from the well nearby and they're all carrying a pot on their head and you can hear all the talking in Hindi. They're all visiting with each other. They're bringing them up to speed about their kids, you know, their husbands, what's going on in their lives. But here this woman's by herself. Why was she by herself? Because she would have went at the morning time and would have been excluded by all the other women because she was a notable character in town. So now she comes on her own in the heat of the day, and Jesus is there, and he's thirsty. Now, isn't it interesting? He could have just started the conversation. I've got something for you. He didn't start that way. He said, listen, I am really thirsty. Would you give me a drink of water? Now, a couple of unusual things. Number one, Jews don't talk to Samaritans because there's a racial prejudice against each other. And number two, in that culture, men didn't just start talking to women. So you've got two things going on. And here's this man who's Jewish talking to this woman who is kind of a questionable character, at the well at noon. And here's kind of a person wearing rabbi clothes. So you can imagine, this is really an unusual situation. How many can already tell? This is not a normal situation. And the woman's probably going, wow, here's a Jew. He's talking to me. He's a rabbi. You know who I am. Wow, this isn't going good. And now he's asking me for a favor. Can I have some water, please? You know? Oh, I didn't tell you this. But the Jews also have purity things, and if, you know, an unclean person touches something, then they defile you. So she's going to actually give him water. It would even be a defilement to him. But, you know, Jesus has never hung up on our defilements because when you and I touch Jesus, he transforms us. He cleanses us. He doesn't become defiled, or I should say he did become defiled on the cross. He took our sin on himself. But in the sense that he... And I was talking to her. Then, you know, she gives him a drink of water, and he says to her, man, if you only knew the kind of water I could give you. It's living water. You'd never have to come to this well again. She goes, well, I'm really interested in that because, you know, this is kind of an embarrassing thing to be coming up here in the heat of the day. If I could have this water that's the living water, I'd never thirst again. I would love that kind of water. And Jesus said, well, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, well... He's really not my husband. He said, well, at least you're honest about it. You've had five of them, and the guy you're with, you're living with. She goes, and this is when people really get spiritual. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. In other words, I think you're a holy man. You must be from God. How do you know all this about me? Then she asked the great, you know, isn't it funny how people like to divert? Because when you're getting close to where people are living, it gets uncomfortable, so now she gets spiritual. She goes, I got a question now that we got a rabbi here, religious class. Let me ask the question. I always love these questions. Trying to get off topic. She goes, the Samaritans, you know, think Muggerism is the holy place to worship. You Jews think it's in Zion or Jerusalem. Where's the right place to worship? He said, you know, you, you Samaritans. I, I love this. Jesus is so forthright. He just says, you guys don't even know what you're worshiping. But I'll tell you what he said. There's a coming a day When you don't have to worship on either mountain, you just can worship in spirit and truth. As a matter of fact, that day has come. She goes, well, who are you? I've heard that the Messiah is supposed to come and change everything. He says, that's who I am. I'm the Messiah. She takes off, leaves her water pot, runs back into town. She goes, come and listen to a man that told me everything about me. Isn't this the Messiah? And the whole town comes to Jesus. Isn't that an amazing story? Why? You know what the part was that was so interesting? He promised life by challenging her source of soul satisfaction. She was searching for her needs to be met in human relationships alone. Five husbands. Now she's living with a guy. She was just longing to be loved. That's all she wanted. She wanted to be accepted. But Jesus knew all along she was still thirsty. Her needs were not met. And once she met Jesus, everything changed. Wow, is that ever beautiful. What a promise to us. He will lead you and I to a place where our souls will be satisfied. The second provision is a work of restoration for our souls. Listen to what it says. He restores my soul. I love that. You know, I wrote in my notes, it's not if he will restore me, it's when I need to be restored. See, I am so convinced in this long journey of life, there are going to come moments I need restoration. I need to be revived. I need to be renewed in my relationship to God. Because at some point in our lives, we try to make it on our own. Isn't that the truth? We end up trying to do our own thing. We end up abandoning what God intends for us. We get absorbed in the very aspect of living life. We find ourselves drifting away. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower and the seed that, you know what, the seed is being choked in our life. What's the things that choke it? The deceitfulness of riches and the cares and the anxieties of life. Does anybody here have any cares and anxieties in this life? Come on, let's be honest. Those things are actually choking out what God has for us. You know, we're allowing these things to rob us of this peace that God wants to bring into our lives, robbing us of this joy and the soul satisfaction that God has for us. See, we have to get to the place where we say, Lord, I'm gonna just depend on you. I don't know how this is gonna work out. I'm just gonna trust you. And then we read here that God will actually direct our lives you know we're all trying to figure it out we know what should i do next what should i be doing this should i go to this town and make this money should i make this decision should i take this job should i fold up my business should i do this or should i do that listen what it says he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake in other words he's going to keep me on the right path in that how, how many think that's amazing you know some of us we question am i really doing god's will listen All you need to do is follow the shepherd and you're in the will of God. Yeah, but you know, sometimes I question, you know, God, should I be doing this or should I be doing that? You know, that's a lot of anxiousness. That's unnecessary. Just do what God is showing you to do today. Just just obey God today. And you know what happens? You string together a couple of days of obedience, and pretty soon it's a week, and then it's a month. And the next thing you know, a year's gone by, and then the next thing you know, a decade has gone by. And like with me, it's like four decades have gone by, and I've been walking with Jesus. And who knew I was going to go to India and teach there, or go to this country and do that? I have no idea what God's doing. Somebody had told me at the beginning, you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. I'm say, really? That would have been a shock to me. I'd have said, I don't see it. So you and I don't know what God has in store for us. All we need to do is be obedient each and every day. Isn't that amazing? I many think that's awesome. Why do we make this so complicated? You know, that's because we want to know everything in advance. We don't want to have to trust God. We want to have knowledge. I'd rather trust God than have the knowledge. I want to just trust God every single day. Let him handle all the hassles. Let him handle all the burdens, right? Let's let him do that. He's going to lead us on the right path. You say, well, you know, pastor, what happens when, I, when he leads me into trouble? Well, he will lead you into trouble. You didn't know that? Listen, listen to what it says here in Psalm 23. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That tells me God is leading me in that place. He leads me through that valley. He leads me through that hard time. You go, really? Yep, God can lead you to difficult places. Listen to what it says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, too. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they're not going to sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What is it saying? It says when God leads you through those hard times, God says, I'm with you. I'm in the place with you walking through there. You say, why does God do that if he really loves me? Why would God even bring us to these difficult, challenging, hard moments in our lives? Because you and I have a different agenda than God has. See, God has an agenda to make you like himself. He's trying to conform you into the image of Christ. And he's going to do all kinds of things to get you to do there. To go through these things to become like him. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. How many know he had a dream when he was 17 years old? He was going to be a leader. Yay, he told his brothers, they're all going to bow down to him. That didn't impress them. They ended up selling him down the river, right? He ended up in Egypt. And when he got into Egypt, he said, God, how come you, you know, cast me away from my family? No, I'm in Egypt. What am I supposed to do here? And he gets a job as a slave, right, because he is a slave. And then his master's wife falsely accuses him, and he gets thrown into prison. How many go, Joseph, are you being led of God? Joseph would have said, no, I've been forgotten by God. Come on now. How many in this room, when you're through a hard time, you're saying, God, where are you? You're saying, I've been forgotten by God. you think God forgot Joseph? Or was God directing his steps right into that prison house because God was sending a butler and a baker into that house, and they had a dream, and Joseph interpreted that dream. Remember that? And the butler got restored, and Joseph said, hey, when you're restored, remember me. But the Bible said, but he forgot because God wasn't done working on Joseph. God wasn't done refining Joseph. And then the day came when Pharaoh had a dream, and he couldn't get an answer to that dream, and the butler goes, "Oh yes, I forgot it." Oh, there was a little Hebrew kid in there. And he was able to peel off my dream just right down to the letter. And then the baker who tried to kill you, you hung him. He knew all of this stuff. But Cheryl said, bring him in. I need to hear what he's got to say. And we all know the story. He became the prime minister of Egypt. And why did he become the prime minister of Egypt? So he could be the big man around the house? No, because at the end, Joseph says this in Genesis chapter 50. He said, you guys stole me down the river, brothers. You demented for evil, but God used it for good. God was directing my steps because God was with me. When you read Genesis chapter 39, it says, And the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. And I want to declare to you today that God is with you. And no
1: matter what situation you're in, when he is your shepherd and you are his sheep, he is with you. Wow. I like that. Thy rod and thy staff may comfort us. The staff speaks of the tool that's used to lead the sheep. And you know how God leads us?
0: We're led by the Spirit. The staff is really a a symbol of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is leading us when we walk in the Spirit. God is directing our lives. And then, you know, it says here, uh, the Holy Spirit is actually the paraclete. John tells us that. That means he's another comfort. He's the one that comes alongside of us. He was with us
1: through all of these things. And then we find out the rod, which is God's word. It speaks of God's word. What does God's word do? It protects us. How does it do that, Pastor? Well, you know what? We have a weapon that God has given us, the word of God, and the enemy comes against us. How does he come against us, Pastor? He gives all these crazy ideas that come in our minds.
0: They're like, you know, fiery darts and tells us, you know, look, God's not taking care of you. Look what's happening to you now. But you know what? You have to say to yourself, that's a lie of the enemy. God will never leave me nor forsake me. Why did I just say that? Because that's the word of God. I know that. Listen to what Paul
1: says here in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What strongholds? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, what he's me is anything that's not the truth, I take captive. And I say, this is what the Bible says about that. You see, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted the scripture. He knew the Word of God. Isn't that powerful? Very powerful. But I'm going to close. I, I'm running even out of more time than I did in the first I'm not even We can keep on going through this song. I love this song. There's so much inside of this song. But let me just stop here. and I'm going to just make three brief little concluding points. First of all, here's number one. Since the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not... We shall not be discontented. You have no lack. If God is for us What's the next go? If God is for us If God is for us Do you believe that? Okay. If God is my shepherd I shall not, I have no lack. I have a life for nothing. God will take care of me. He will take care of me. Point number two. Because the Lord is our shepherd, we have no fear. I would fear no evil. No want, no fear. No want, no fear. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want more fear. I'm going to go, thank you, Lord. Isn't that a bigger problem? No fear. Right? Well, not Isn't that true? Absolutely. I love this song. I'm start to like this It's making more all the time. Listen to this. I love the it. It's and love.